0: You are listening to The Hospice Chaplaincy Show, a show where we talk about psychospiritual and psychosocial aspects of end-of-life care. And now, here is your host, Saul.
1: Thank you very much for joining us on this episode of The Hospice Chaplaincy Show. I'm Saul Ebema, and I have a special guest for us here, Holly Vosso. Welcome to the show.
2: Thank you so much for having me. Um, yeah, I think it's been an interesting journey into hospice reporting and um I'm really happy that you're having me as a guest today.
1: I want to start by saying you've done an amazing work with Hospice News. And um, I find myself on Hospice News almost every day trying to read what is out there, what's happening in our field. So well done.
2: (laughs) That's good to hear that we're, that's part of our, you know, intention is to report news that's relevant and uh, important.
1: So uh, where did you grow up?
2: Um, I was actually a Chicago native. I was born in Illinois. Um, I think we were just talking about this before we hit recording that I've recently moved to Wisconsin. But um, yeah, I'm from the Illinois area and I've seen a lot of different sides of uh, hospice care.
1: So as a child, what was your dream?
2: I always had this love for for words. I mean, I was one of those kids that had allergies. So, uh, reading was good in the summer, but you'd often find me in a tree with a notebook, a pen, or a book. So, I think that love for words just kind of transpired into um, how can I make a difference with this? And I found that journalism is one of those things because you're always hunting for those facts, those truths, and reporting on things
1: that are important in the world. So at that age, what were you writing? Were you doing some poems or songs? (laughs) The
2: angsty poetry of what does any, you know, teenager write about, yeah, yeah, but I think a lot of it was an interest in just expressing those emotions and having an outlet at first, but um, then it became into like wanting to, you know, I'd want to learn about something and write, end up writing some kind of little research on my own. Um, so that kind of delved, dove right into, okay, this is going to be a career in reporting. <laughs>
1: yeah, It's really powerful. I'm from Africa and uh, we grew up from a young age with the tradition of storytelling. Yeah. And I see that in journalists too. So what steps did you take to become a journalist? Then?
2: Um, I think just having that element of writing, always exercising that. Um, kind of talent in, in you and building it. Uh, but I went to uh, school for college for journalism and graduated with print journalism and that was still a thing, um, which gives away my age a little bit. But um, now, it's, you know, media is more open. It's things like this where we're doing a, a podcast and videos or radio and all of that uh, really kind of took off after I would say college. I started environmental reporting was my passion you know just seeing all like the ways to help the world <laughs> save the world um, yes. but then I ended up in you know healthcare publishing and being an editor in that and you know after seeing some of my own personal um, experiences and with family and hospice it, it was really something that I started off freelancing actually for hospice news and then Um, When there's a full, when they grew and they were able to do full time, it was a great opportunity and I couldn't pass it up.
1: So what about hospice, you know, that connects deeply with you to be able to do this work?
2: I think a lot. We've talked to a lot of providers and it's always a personal story usually that that usually brings someone in. Um, But I've seen, you know, family members of my own have these really wonderful quality, beautiful ends to their lives on hospice, but I've also seen the other side where it's this horrific experience and they didn't get the care or support they need and their, you know, caregivers were struggling and they were struggling and going through too much pain or suffering. So, um, I think that's really what drew me into, I want to change the latter end of that. And if I can be a voice in that industry that makes a, a ripple of difference, then, you know, I've, that is something that is meaningful. So,
1: Yeah. You know, at Hospice Chaplaincy, we wanted to do uh, some research on uh, how end of life care is being provided for people with sexual and gender minorities. Mm-hmm. And then we came across your incredible uh, reporting. Uh, tell us, how did you start reporting on that particular subject?
2: Yeah, that's a really great question, because uh, we do a lot of Uh, patient access issues and that can cover a really wide base of underserved populations and initially it started off as you know there's this civil unrest going on at the the height of the pandemic on top of it and that just kind of sparked well what other populations aren't hospices you know reaching that they could be what's health equity look like Um, and that's for you know populations of, of color that's populations of different genders you know sexual identities and realizing even that in itself is something that isn't um in hospice and it, it can be something that's lacking as far as their understanding that the two are not the same <laughs> um so yeah i think that once i was digging into this it was seeing a lot of parallels as far as barriers that the lgbtq community hits. Um, you know that discrimination, um the bias, the not as much inclusive, and it all kind of I think stems from a lack of understanding uh, misconceptions or misperceptions amongst providers themselves. So um but I think they're increasingly trying to recognize that. And I think spiritual care is one of those elements that's kind of broken that could be fixed and and could be one of those uh, bridges yeah. to access.
1: So, in your initial reporting uh what what did you hear from patients from the sexual and gender minorities in terms of hospice treatment
2: um I think just with research i've I've worked with uh or i've kind of communicated with different advocacy groups that do that research into patients um and they've what they've come across is that a lot of these patients will um they'll have sort of issues coming across the, Inclusive care, ones that honor their beliefs and their system, um, their values, um, just barriers of just even understanding that even if they check this, for example, if they have to go onto that patient document and check male or female and there's no other option, that alone can be, you know, a very difficult question for some people to um even approach and then it will hit the door on on being able to reach them through that you know it kind of puts up a barrier of I need to protect myself um, but I think just honor being able to honor those those wishes and value I mean it shouldn't it shouldn't matter who they are what they love or you know any of those things it, everyone deserves that quality end-of-life care experience as far as the barriers that they can you know LGBTQ seniors in particular can experience more at least right now in the time that we are now they can experience more medical mental and physical disparities due to a lack of appropriate inclusive care um, that's compounded by this like lifelong experiences of discrimination of feeling isolated from the the masses or the public just because of who they love or what they are or how they identify themselves. Um, I think that we've come many strides at, as a societal level, um, but in healthcare systems, you know, that that's something that has room to grow for them, and they've experienced like this historic sort of um, those misconceptions about that and not treated fairly. Um, you know, even even our traditional definition of a family or a caregiver or a loved one might not look the same in that. That community. So it's even recognizing that. um, And then I think the spiritual care is one of those barriers that they hit because they'll speak with a chaplain who might have this set of belief systems that's different from theirs. And there's, you know, there's not that understanding and common ground. So they don't get the the quality of spiritual care that they deserve.
1: And that is something I'm hoping that um, uh, we can really work uh, to resolve, because spiritual care at the end of life is such an important aspect uh of end of life care, and if someone is not receiving that care properly uh then there's something wrong with us. I think clinicians and even uh, hospice chaplains have a lot uh, a lot to learn, especially as assum- some assumptions mm-hmm. or when we are dealing with discrimination um some of it it could be even uh, what we consider minor, like there was a patient uh the nurse was talking to her and she was talking about her partner. And then the nurse asked, what is his name? And yet it, it was not a man. Right. You know, so even little things like that, I think we can begin to change in our language, yeah. you know, so that people can feel included.
2: That's definitely part of it. Just even those pronouns can be important in making that mindful change of what's their name versus assigning any kind of gender to it. Um, yeah. Even that, yeah, just even, and that could be a slip that they're not even thinking of, but I think um, that training, staff training and education, that can kind of come into play with chaplains as well. Um, just kind of incorporating that into not just their onboarding, but their ongoing training. You know, how can you be more uh, sensitive or mindful or inclusive? Uh, that And that, that language that you mentioned, right, there's just one piece of it. Um, And then, you know, just answering the question of who would you have, it doesn't have to be your spouse, Um, you know, be that person that's decision making for you, who is that person in your life, Um, and not designating it to a specific family member, you know, we don't need to put everything into this neat little box, um, because there's so many things that fall outside of that.
1: And uh, I don't know if chaplains recognize the magnitude of the role they can play in this kind of situation.
2: One provider told me about a, a patient story that they felt conflicted in uh, being able to provide, you know, services to that patient because where that patient was or who they loved was different. And they couldn't, you know, they're like, well, I took this differs from my belief system. So it was difficult for me to provide what they needed and what their request was, um, at their, their bedside at the end of life, because it differed from mine. And I think taking that own personal barrier down and kind of even being aware of what those might be in yourself before going to that patient is an important kind of. measure just to take stock of first. It changed that patient's how they couldn't have that person that was their, you know, loved one at their bedside because of that sort of, you know, they weren't able to um, perform, I think it was a ceremony, like a marriage ceremony, because it went against what they felt. Um, but even if that's their case, you can respect someone's beliefs, whether they're a chaplain or the patient, whichever side they're on, you can respect that their their belief systems it's is who we are at our core, um whatever we believe in. And so it's hard. I can understand how that's hard to honor if you're on that chaplain side of it and you're trying to find that middle ground. But at the end of the day, it's this is some you don't get a second chance for this person. you know they're they're at their end of life, and it's just if you're gonna put yourself in their shoes, that's the time to do it and say, you know how maybe I don't feel comfortable performing this. Um, But maybe I might know someone who could, or, you know, it's finding those solutions outside of what you just, you know, so far, you know, opening your, your mind and your, your abilities a little bit further.
1: Yeah. I think, you know, you're right in that you can hold your beliefs in tension with the beliefs of the person and find somebody. Right. You know, you can say, I can't do this, but I can find another minister Mm -hmm. who can do this for you in a way that you can still continue to provide care.
2: What I did come across in one of those stories that was pretty powerful was, um, you know, a transgender individual wanted to seek care. And that's kind of why I brought up the check the box of female versus male, because even that step... They were really ready to accept that they're at the end of life, uh, that they wanted hospice. They wanted that access to care, which even bridging the hospice, the H-word can be scary for patients alone, right? So that was a huge step that they had taken. But once they got into that provider, that provider would not stop referring to their um, the gender they were born with versus what they were in their current life. They weren't honoring that. And that stopped that. Really, you can imagine just you go through so much to make that transition in your life, and accept yourself. Um, and you need to have your healthcare providers honor that wish. Just even the pronoun itself can make a difference. But understanding, um, just again, putting yourself in that patient's shoes, that should be rule number one. And that wasn't something that was done for that patient. So, you know, I can only understand that pain of, you know, this is who I am and I'm not being recognized for it at the end of my life of all, of all times, you know, so that is a heartbreaking story, but it, it I think it does go to, to show that there's room for the improvement inclusive in just that training and understanding is, is I would say, step one for any hospice to do, um, not just in their, their chaplaincy, but their clinician clinical staff their admit who's ever taking that patient on board i mean that sensitivity has to be there
1: Well that would take a little break and we'll be right back
2: continuing to be a leader in the field of spiritual care at the end of life hospice chaplaincy provides high quality professional development webinars that will improve your practice of spiritual care at the end of life Check out our latest webinars
1: at www.hospicechaplaincy.com. I'm Solly and you're listening to the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. We continue our conversation with Harley Voss uh, from Hospice News. Um, I, I think uh, before the break, you know, we spoke about some of the tragedies and, and, and how people from uh, how patients are being mistreated due to lack of competency from healthcare professionals. And there's a lot of education that needs to be done, a lot of messaging that needs to be done to make people feel more inclusive. And that is one of the things we like with your work in that you're reporting and and challenging, you know, these organizations to message uh, better. Mm -hmm. How do you think, you know, uh, hospices can provide better messaging that has inclusivity in it?
2: Yeah, I, that's a great question. I think their marketing um, is probably one area that a lot of hostesses can do. Um, you, even in whatever advertisements you might be employing, you can have that representation there. Um, you can also have that representation in your staff as well. You can make it a point in When you're doing referral outreach and trying to build those streams of, you know, having those conversations with um, those referral sources, whether they be other clinicians or other providers, other health systems. So I think marketing is one point. I think um, what I've heard from um, other hospice chaplains is that, you know, recruiting more of a cadre of chaplains of different faith systems can be something that can bridge that gap. And and because then you have this wealth of cultures, traditions of, you know, different perspectives of, of different, you know, theological kind of uh, areas coming together. And that diversity alone can then help you reach a more diverse population. And I think to your point as well, that education and training for chaplains can and should probably include this deeper reflection on the ways that patients' beliefs can, you know, um, be honored. Look outside that scope of what you might know and see what you can do to, to better honor that, that patient's values. I
1: mean, we make a lot of assumptions. That's the truth. Right. Assumptions of family, assumptions of sexual identity. We, I think uh, when we are driven by assumptions, we keep messing up.
2: Right. I think understanding terminology is important too. I don't think you have to know what every single acronym or new thing that is, that is evolving, because that's something that's going to change. It's understanding those differences and those nuances and what they mean. It gives you that understanding as the provider to be like, okay, I know where they're at least coming from. Now I can you know, use the right language and, and bridge that divide
0: in their care and their understanding.
1: With that, we'll take a little break and we'll be right back.
0: If someone you know is suffering from mental health issues and could use some support, please call the National Alliance for Mental Illness Helpline. It is a free nationwide peer support service providing information, resource referrals, and support to people living with a mental health condition. To contact the NAMI Helpline, please call 1-800-950-NAMI. That's 1-800-950-6264, Monday through Friday, or send an email to info at I'm
1: Sole and You're listening to the Hospice Chaplains' so This is we continue our conversation. Uh, let us talk about uh, ways that chaplains and uh, hospice clinicians can improve care. Um, because I think we, we all agree there's a lot of work to do. What are some of the suggestions you think chaplains and healthcare clinicians can do?
2: I think one um, thing that I've heard so far is just making sure in, in any equitable kind of initiative that you have is maybe not labeling it as that as a program or as thinking of it as honing your services to this population. Um, it's just being more mindful and inclusive. It's something that you know if it's Black History Month, that's not the only time that you focus your diversity efforts there, right? So this seems to be true for your LGBTQ community. Don't just highlight that you're, you serve this population during Pride Month. I mean, make it, build that into your, your messaging, your mission, your, your services, um, and scope them and model them in a way that the delivery of that care is quality for someone, no matter what they identify as or who they love. And I think representation in your staff is another thing that I've heard also is just in being more inclusive in your hiring practices as well. Seeing someone like yourself in this situation, it has you at more of a comfort level and an ease and a trust. It can build those things of being like, okay, they're not just preaching this they're practicing what they, they preach. Yeah. I think also just going into those communities, um, and have I mean, chaplains can be that key, too, that does go into those communities, builds those relationships with people in them. Um, there's advocacy groups of all kinds when it comes to LGBTQ communities. You can find them within your own service regions and develop those relationships so that you understand maybe what their plight is and then also what they need to uh, receive better care.
1: So, yeah, I think, you in, in under, there's an important key in understanding people, right? It's hard to meet the needs of other people if you don't know what those needs are. Mm-hmm. And that takes a lot of listening sessions, a lot of uh, empathy, a lot of compassion and, and put, putting in an effort to fully understand uh, this person, especially when, when you're providing uh, spiritual care. You can't just come with the assumptions of, if, even if somebody is Christian, let's say, but there are many variances within the Christian tradition. So it's important to listen to the patient. And you know what I've found out that is that the patients will actually teach you how to care for them. If, you're, if you have the time and, and the passion to listen to them, they'll teach you how to care for them. And I think it's time for hospice clinicians to become educated about caring for LGBTQ patients. And there's a lot of resources, like you said. There's no reason why uh, we do not utilize those resources to become much more educated in these issues and provide better care. There's a lot of data. There's a lot of research. We need to be able to use research to provide better care.
2: I think taking that mirror upon yourself as a provider too and being like, where where are potential pitfalls that I might be portraying this image that we aren't inclusive? Where are the breakdowns in our models of care or how we're presenting ourselves to the public and uh, referrals and all of those things? Um, Just looking at that and really examining it with a, a microscope and putting yourself there, I think would also help understand maybe what needs to be fixed internally before you start reaching outward. Yeah.
1: I also think of importance is that, uh, hospice organizations can include sexual orientation and gender identity in non-discrimination policies. Mm -hmm. I think we need to be able to do that.
2: Right. That could be sort of expanded upon in, in a lot of different ways. Right.
1: Yeah. And we, you spoke a little bit about that earlier To Ask transgender patients for their preferred name and pronoun and use them. Apologize if you make a mistake. Those are practical things, right? you know, uh, that we can do.
2: Practical but important things. Important to, things. Yeah.
1: Permit equal visitation of LGBTQ spouses, families, and support persons. That's important. Mm -hmm. End of life care, you need your loved ones around you.
2: Whoever they might be, right?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Whoever they may be, you need those people around you. And um, I think it's, it's high time. And that's why we are doing this, you know, to create more awareness in that we have not done enough, but we can do better. There's no human population that should suffer at the end of life
2: there's always that room, I think, to grow if you have the mindset towards it. So it's a very good point. Yeah.
1: So what are your final thoughts?
2: I think just the final thoughts is that there are, it's not that providers aren't, the vast majority of what what, who at least we've spoken with um, is that they want to do better. They just might not know those steps fully or think they grasp it. And I think sometimes having, um, taking yourself out of that and putting yourself into that outside view is is one first step but just even taking the step towards improvement is an important one to make
1: wow thank you very much for joining us and being part of this conversation I really really appreciate it
2: it's been a meaningful journey um, (laughs) and I don't think we're gonna stop reporting on this anytime soon
1: no we shouldn't so we have a lot of conversations to do so thank you (laughs) thank you very much that was Holly Vosso, a reporter for Hospice News. Thank you for listening.
0: This show is brought to you by Hospice Chaplaincy, promoting excellence in spiritual care at the end of life. This episode was recorded at Audio Hive Podcasting in Julia, Illinois. You can find our podcast everywhere podcasts are available. If you enjoy listening to this show, please don't forget to give us your feedback by writing a review on iTunes. For more information, please visit www.hospicechaplaincy.com.